0: Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Annie Finch, who is a poet, writer, critic, editor, playwright, librettist, translator, and witch. Annie told me, I've been a passionate Scrivener user for a decade and love few things more than talking about Scrivener. Annie, thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I always like when people get in touch with me and say, I love Scrivener. It's my favorite thing. You're not the first. And you did reach out to me some months ago after you had heard the podcast. And it's interesting how much writers can actually love the tool that they work with.
1: That's so true, and it works electronically. I mean, sometimes I think writers fetishize their physical tools. I remember Neil Gaiman did an entire interview about the pens and the pencils that he uses, and one might think that it's the physical aspect, but I think Scrivener proves that it's not. It's it's something else. It's like it's the interface between our inner selves and the world, and as such, we love the tool, even if it's uh, a software. <laughs> it's it's remarkable. Yeah,
0: I think that software can sometimes match the way we think. And, and some software that you don't, that you're not compatible with, it's because it's not designed to work the way you think. And I think Scrivener is flexible enough that people can get that personal feeling of attachment.
1: Exactly so. I first heard about, and most sc- poets don't know about Scrivener. I first heard about Scrivener because I was directing an MFA program in creative writing. And uh, called Stone Coast that I directed for about a dozen years. And we were very unusual among MFA programs because we brought science fiction writers in and we had them on the faculty. We were not snobby in that way, as so many MFA programs are. And so we had a Kat Valente, who's a wonderful science fiction writer and also writes poetry as well. Um, and she made, she made some remark about Scrivener, just a small brief, passionate remark, and I was intrigued, and I looked it up, and I immediately, I found a Scrivener, and I just knew this was it. It was familiar, and it, you know, it was just exactly what I needed. It was so unlike anything else I'd ever worked with. So it, it changed my life, and there was a very steep learning curve, too, but maybe we'll go into it later, and it was worth it, I'll just say. up front.
0: So let's talk about you. You are a witch, and is part of this because you were born on Halloween?
1: Um, You know, it could be, because uh, it was a natural costume choice for all those years, so I got comfortable with the feeling of being a witch, and I loved the empowerment of it. Uh, But, yeah, I think it's also... Largely because I'm a poet, there is a big connection between poetry and witchcraft. They are, you know, and if you go back in traditional cultures, uh, witches are shamans, right? They're, they're the ones who take the journeys, the shamanic journeys on their brooms with mind-altering drugs on the broomstick, apparently. And they, um, you know, they, they know how to channel between the worlds and they usually use meter and rhythm to do that. So I am a poet who's very attuned and very experienced in the power of rhythms and meters. And so as a witch, those are an essential part of um, my way of interfacing spiritually and magically with the world. So, yeah, I feel that um, my training as a poet was leading me inevitably to become a witch, even though I didn't really know about witchcraft until I was about 30 and moved to California and finally met a real witch. Those were, I came up pre internet. So I, you know, I didn't really realize I was a witch until later on. But I'd say what I thought was being a poet all those years was actually kind of being a witch as
0: well. So, what is poetry? How do we define poetry? That is a great
1: question, Kirk. I'm so glad you asked because it's mysterious, isn't it, how um, people ask this question a lot. I don't hear people asking what's dance, what's painting, You know, what's fiction. But about poetry, people often ask the question. And my feeling is that this is because poetry in the 20th century became visual-focused and lost some of the connection with the ear and the body and the mouth, which is the the connection of meter and rhythm. So um, th- I think this is one of the sources of the confusion. So I thought about this question a lot. What is poetry? Starting when I was in an MFA program as a student, and I discovered that nobody really knew what poetry was. <laughs> so, uh, and I... Over the years, I've edited many, many anthologies about poetry and poetic form that have have forced me to think about this, not only abstractly, but also very practically in the sense of having to make decisions. What qualifies as a poem for the book? What qualifies as a formal poem? So I've really thought about this. And this is my answer. Poetry is a magical way of arranging language through the use of repetition. And it's not... It doesn't have to be a received kind of repetition, it could be any kind of repetition. It could repeat a conceptual pattern, it could repeat a phrase, it could repeat a metrical rhythm, it could repeat, um, you know, the, the letters of the alphabet, a form called an abysadarian. It could just simply repeat the line break in free verse. All The, the only thing that's repeated is the line break. But whatever is repeated, it's repeated in a predictable way. and. My sense of poetry is that the power of poetry, the unique power of poetry, comes through this predictable repetition of any language element. Any language element at all can be used as a repeating unit to create a poem. And this is the difference. It's that simple. It's just the repetition. And this is what hypnotizes people. This is what children love. This is what creates that special quality that we call poetic without really knowing what it is.
0: And yet people don't really read much poetry these days. You said the children love it and children learn poetry when they're young. But as they get older, poetry seems to be on the sidelines as surprisingly, rap music is extremely popular, which is poetry. And I listen to music by my favorite poet, the Nobel-winning author Bob Dylan, all the time.
1: Oh, he was a huge influence on me, Bob Dylan. He was one of my major influences as a poet coming up.
0: So you're one of the ones who agrees with the Nobel Prize for literature, because I've read a lot of people who think that it shouldn't go to someone who writes mere songs.
1: Oh, he was a brilliant poet, absolutely wonderful poet. Yeah, I I totally am, am on board. In fact, I have a huge blog post about how Dylan should have gotten it that I didn't manage to publish in time, but you're inspiring me. Maybe I'll get it out there on my Annie Spells blog. But um, yeah, I, to me, the um, it's not surprising at all that rap is now so popular because rap is poetry in the sense that I'm talking about. In fact, it uses the same rhythm as Anglo-Saxon poetry uses normally. Most rap has an accentual rhythm with four strong beats on every line, um, and you know, and definitely regular. And so, I think. The key of the key to the mystery is the phrase that you used. Nobody reads poetry anymore. The fact is that poetry is really not meant to be read. In my experience, the the most rich experience of poetry comes from hearing it and speaking it in the body. And free verse does not lend itself to that because free verse, as I said, depends on the line break. The only repeating element in free verse is the line break, and you have to look at the page to do that. It, it suits itself very well to the classroom. We have everybody sitting there staring at the poem on the page together. But when you're out of a classroom, who gives a shit about free verse? I mean, it's really hard to find somebody who wants to sit in a room and listen to free verse for an hour or two, I think. You know, this. <laughs> this is so pathetic when you hear poets having to apologize. Oh, I'll just read one more. Even great poets often seem to be treated in this way. Like nobody really wants to sit there and exactly listen, but to look, contrast that with, um, Michael McGlaris, who's an opera singer who performs nineteenth-century poetry, Longfellow and Whittier, he did a performance of Hiawatha, which is actually an incredibly interesting and well-researched um, documentation of the American of the Native American uh, cultures of some of the tribes in Minnesota at his time of his time. But Michael McGlaris did an eight-hour. It was a, sorry, six hour performance of Hiawatha in Portland, Maine. I, I was there live and there were hundreds of people in the audience and they stayed for six hours and they loved it. And these were not even poets. These were like real realtors and plumbers, I know, because I was interviewing people in the bathroom. I couldn't believe it, that people were sitting there for six hours listening to poetry and loving it. And it's the meter. It's the meter that changes it. Meter is Essential I think to making poetry enjoyable in the for long stretches uh, for people to just listen to um, so it's really not about reading and I'm trying to even get away from using the word write and rather use the word create or make poetry. But, of course, in
0: Scrivener, I do it all. It's interesting how people, as you say, they get entranced by the, the spoken word. I explained I live a few miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, and a friend of mine came to visit a few years ago. And I said, well, we'll go to the theater. He says, oh, I can't understand that. And he he saw an extraordinary production of Hamlet, and he was just overwhelmed by it. He was just so delighted. And he is not someone who cares about Shakespeare, but he just got carried away by the language.
1: And the and the meter, right? I mean – yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant meter.
0: Makes all the difference.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about writing plays in meter, which is one of the
0: reasons I'm a playwright. So tell tell me about your work. There are different styles of poetry. Does your work fit in a specific style? How would you describe it?
1: Well, my work is almost always formalist. That would be the word for contemporary um, poetry in meter. Uh, it does use meter and rhythm quite a bit. Uh, which a lot of poets nowadays don't, but as you can tell, I'm very passionate about meter, and uh, it's actually very different from most formalist poetry. Though I'm, I would I would characterize my work as rhapsodic. I think I'm a religious poet in many ways and a political poet as well. Being a witch, I write about. Uh, about magic, I write about sex as a spiritual practice, I write about nature, I write about the body, I write about goddesses, and mysticism. So these are all, you know, witchy topics for poetry. So I would consider myself a religious and a spiritual poet, and aesthetically, definitely a, a formalist poet. And I think the most distinctive aspect of my poetry as far as formal poetry goes is that I use a diversity of meters. Most poetry today, it's either in iambic pentameter or in free verse. And I've made a career out of exploring the other rhythms of poetry, anipas, dactyls, trochies, and and teaching them as well. In my poetry Which community, I teach these rhythms to, to poets and It's just wonderful how transformative it is. When you start working in different rhythms, it changes everything. It changes the way you think. It changes the way the poems come out. So um, I work with five basic meters, and I associate them with the will, the mind, the body, the heart, and the spirit. So each of these has a different rhythm. For example, uh, the rhythm of the dactyl the rhythm of um, the ancient epics, I consider the rhythm of the heart. And they've actually done studies with uh, heart attack patients and reading poetry in dactylic rhythms does cure, it it speeds up the process of healing after a heart attack. Can you give us an example of a dactyl rhythm? Sure. Um, Here's a little invocation that I wrote to the direction of the West in dactyls. Heart of the waves rocking flow in us. Love, sweet as water, come grow in us. Heart of the waves rocking flow in us. Love, sweet as water, come grow in us.
0: When you were reading that, the rhythm of the language automatically prepared my mind to listen to more language in that rhythm. And that's fascinating how we go from our normal conversation right now, normal English speech, to that rhythm that you just applied, which kind of opens a door, doesn't it?
1: Exactly so, exactly so. That is the rhythm of the heart and it opened the door into your heart. And, you know, this is why people can listen to Michael McGlaris recite Longfellow for six hours and not get bored, because he's using the rhythm of the heart or the body or the will. And I think the real tragedy and the the real reason that I'm so passionately committed to this concept I call metrical diversity is because the iambic is the rhythm of the mind. And basically, poets are now put in a box in our culture where the only options are the rhythm of the mind, or chaos, or randomness, or, you know, without opening any of those doors of of other things. So, it's so important to to give the mind the will, the heart, and the spirit, which are the other four rhythms I use, um, are the rhythms of these other things besides the mind, give them equal play. So, I've developed this whole... um, System like a system of the five directions, which my entire community online, the poetry, which community is all organized around these five directions. The late the books I've edited lately, I just edited a book about abortion, writing on abortion. That's all organized in these five five directions as well. So it's it takes the form of a sacred circle where you have the will, the mind, the body, the heart, and the spirit going counterclockwise. The order is very important. I've developed this stuff over years. It's like a big poem to me. It has a very clear structure, which Really helps me live my life, and it helps me. Um, it helps me organize my thinking. It helps me organize my days. It helps me can, can teach my teachings. It helps me edit books. And and to me, the structure is so precious because it it prevents the mind from taking over everything. It puts the mind in its place as one of five different aspects of being a human being in the
0: world. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener. <laughs> Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing, and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, Annie, now you said to me, and I'll repeat, I've been a passionate Scrivener user for a decade and love few things more than talking about Scrivener. When you contacted me, I was thinking, well, Scrivener is really great if you're writing a long form work, a novel, a long nonfiction work. But poems, most poems are generally smaller. How do you use Scrivener as a poet?
1: Well, the first thing that I really got excited about using Scrivener for was adjusting, rearranging the order of poems within a book. Because for me, a book of poems is like a giant poem, and the structure is crucially important. So, uh, like, my, my first book was divided into nine different sections. Each one was organized around but They organized around a series of poems, each one to a different goddess. So each of the nine sections had a different goddess, and then there were several poems associated with that goddess in that section. So, of course, as you can imagine, there's adjustments, right? So on my living room floor, I would put piles and move things from pile to pile. So I used that uh, the drag and drop function of Scrivener being able to put things into different folders as the equivalent of having these piles of poems on my living room floor that go the different sections. So um, in the book after that was organized around um, the seasons of the year. And, and the one I'm doing now is organized into these five different meters. So similarly um, that, so that was the, the first thing that really hooked me on Scrivener was the ability to do that. Then I began to realize the value in terms of revision because I'm a, fanatical reviser. I can revise a poem dozens, hundreds of times. And I used to have to print out every single copy or else lose the draft. And so the snapshot feature is unbelievably helpful for me. I just take snapshots whenever I feel like, oh, I don't want to lose this draft. I might want to go back to it. Or um, for my archives in the future, um, I'm planning to, you know, have someone help me to print out. I have these exhaustive archives; a lot of them are at Yale University. Um, so, you know, I really value my drafts and the the writing process. So, um, at some point, I'm going to figure out a way to print out the different snapshots. Um, I think I'll probably have to delete them as I print them. Unless Scrivener has come up with another way to do it, but anyway, at some point I will be printing these snapshots out, or cutting and pasting them maybe into other files to do it, and then they'll be
0: priceless. Because poetry is a lot about revision, isn't it? You work with something and then you live with it for a while, and you you tweak just little bits as yeah. you as you progress, right?
1: Well, as Yeats said, you know, um, people people have it wrong. Uh, they think that I do wrong. What's it uh, to spend so much time revising a song? But what they don't understand is, it is myself that I remake. When I revise, I remake myself. So it's everything. I have some poems that I've been working on for twenty twenty five years. Others come in an instant. The French call them donne, they They're gifts. But uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful mystery to me how some poems can come in a flash and never change at all, others... Have to be revised for decades before I get them right. And sometimes it's a question of just finding the right form. So there's all that. And then, meanwhile, um, there are other things too that I don't use as much, but I just want to mention here it seems the right moment to say that um, I've been a proselytizer for Scrivener for ages. And so I tell every student of mine, every poet, everybody in my poetry, which community I tell them about Scrivener. And a lot of them have found other uses that I don't use as much, but uh, a lot of them use the the metadata the notes to keep a record of um where the poem has been published how it's been how many times it's been sent out things like that they actually use scrivener as a submissions manager for poems which Of course, that's much more complicated in poetry than fiction because you have so many different things to send. Uh, So that's helpful for them. And then a lot of them use the labels. And I've I've done this sometimes. They use the different color labels to mark the status of the poem. Is it a draft? Is it finished? Is it published or not? Things like that. So um, there are those other functions as well that I know a lot of poets use.
0: Do you keep all your poems in a single Scribner project or do you have multiple projects for different... Styles, periods, topics?
1: Yeah. Well, books. I mean, every every book of poetry that I have is a Scrivener file, of course. And um, chapbooks and things like that. And then potential books. <laughs> and I've got a lot of potential books. Like I've got a potential book of uh, translations or poems on certain topics. So each of those gets its own Scrivener file. And then I can easily drag things back and forth or copy them. So some poems are in multiple files. And then I try to have a... I have like a working poems file that's just kind of a random thing or whatever I'm working on. And then I also have like um, an archive file where I try to keep copies of all of the poems from all of my different books so that if I need to send someone a copy of a poem, I can get the, the final version that was in the book. And I can find that easily in this one place, like a mistress list of poems.
0: So so you can just do a quick search to find, if you know a poem has a particular line in it, and you don't remember the title, you can just find it in Scrivener like that.
1: Yeah, and I always remember the title, but yeah, if, if I need to, um, but yeah, I could actually, yeah, using the spotlight, you mean, yeah, totally.
0: No, in Scrivener, search in Scrivener in the search field just above the binder. In that
1: one big, big, big file, I could, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, I do that. Usually, I don't have to search, but I just keep them all in one place because I know that those are the final versions that appeared in the books. So um, I'll just go. I'll go in there. I'll click on the folder of that particular book and find the poem.
0: With a novelist, I can say how many novels have you written, and they've written four or six or twenty-five. But with a poet. How do you count? Do you count how many poems you've written or how many books? or Because some of your books of poetry are collections of poems that have been published elsewhere or not published. How do you add up all this?
1: Yeah, I have a selected poems that had a lot of previously unpublished poems in it. Um, I guess normally you say how many books of poems have you published, and if one of them was a chapbook or the other was a selected, then it sort of evens out. I mean, I would say I've published six books of poetry one book of poetry in translation and probably like five chapbooks and then like another dozen books about poetry
0: i think some of our listeners might not know what a chapbook is
1: oh a chapbook is a fun little book uh that's smaller than a regular book and sometimes they're by small presses or they could be stapled together or they could be pretty pretty serious i've got a, a nice little chapbook called the poetry witch little book of spells came out a year or two ago it's just it costs like six bucks and it's just a tiny tiny little perfect bound book that's a smaller format
0: so you've also done some translations, and we were talking before the show, you translated poetry of Louise Labé, who was a 16th century poet in Lyon, France. And just by accident, I came across a French radio show a few days ago talking about this. Now, I'm fluent in French because I lived in French for a long time. And her works have just been published in the prestigious Playade series in France. And the editor of these works was on this radio program explaining that Louise Labbe did not write the poems. And I thought, well, well, that's really interesting because this sounds like one of these things where they're trying to sideline a female poet.
1: Yes, I know. It's very distressing. And uh, my my co-translator and I were quite disturbed about it because she is known as the first feminist French poet and you know, her poetry feels so extremely female, and passionate and exciting. So one wouldn't want to think that it was written by a team of men, I think is the current theory uh, that that is big in France right now. So it is sad, but the poems themselves are amazing. And I, I'm happy that my translations of them at least were done by a woman. <laughs> and so uh, I feel, you know, confident that There's a a strong female voice in my poems, and I loved translating her. Um, I I learned so much. It was so amazing. And um, it changed, you know, how it is. It changed my own poetry forever after. I think you're a translator too, right, Kirk? So you know, as you said, um, how it can change your own work. But, yeah, I guess my feeling about the whole controversy is, it can be interesting from one point of view. I'm really not interested in following it that much because I just, as Mark Twain said, they were written by Louise Labbe or someone else by that name. I believe Mark Twain said yeah. for Shakespeare, uh, which is a very wise perspective, I think. You know, it comes down to the, they stand on their own.
0: Uh, yeah, even if even if it was someone else, the poetry speaks for itself. It speaks for itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. And politically, well, I would hope it were a, her. Of course, that she were a woman, and I think that's it's similar to the way politically a lot of people hope that Shakespeare was really written by Shakespeare. But if they were really written by Edward De Vere, it really doesn't matter. And if Louise Lepe was really written by a man, it really doesn't matter because you know they've managed to change the world as as Louise Labbe, the woman, and they've managed to change the world as Shakespeare, the simple person from Avon. You know, they've managed to change the world as the world needed to be changed by those works. And, you know, if eventually people learn more about the actual historical writers, hopefully at that point, it won't be so politically necessary to to think of them as those authors that we believed they were for so long. If you hear what I'm saying. I
0: I think most Americans don't, have a lot of exposure to poetry, but when Amanda Gorman read her poem at President Biden's inauguration, that touched a lot of people. It was very moving to see a poem so well-embraced by people. And you have an article on the Poetry Foundation website about occasioning poetry or occasional poetry, writing poems for specific events. Is this something that we need more of?
1: I I do think so. Uh, I think Amanda Gorman did a wonderful job. I think she really had a sense of the occasion, and um, I was very pleased that there was some rhyme in her poem that I, I thought really elevated it and helped people to enjoy it more. And I, I do think it's important. And I think part of the falling off of interest in occasional poetry has to do with the um, with the falling off of practice of the structure and the form of poetry. I think it's much harder to write a poem for an occasion if you don't have form to help you. And I think, you know, as I think form form is coming back now, form and meter are coming back to poetry, rap has helped that a lot. Um, Poetry slams have helped that a lot. Uh, One of the best Poets I ever taught in terms of learning meter was Patricia Smith, who was a four-time National Poetry Slam winner. Uh, I think, you know, the, the poetry slams and the performance and the tradition that Amanda Gorman is partly coming out of really helps people to appreciate form and structure again. And this is going to lead to more appreciation of poetry as a crafted object that is a gift from the poet to society and that has its own particular structures and its own particular skills, its own particular demands that makes it appropriate as a gift. Um, it's kind of a post-romantic approach, I think. Uh, the Romanticism tends to think of poetry as more an expression of the personal self. It doesn't matter who's listening. And um, this organic form sort of idea suits that. But um, it's, it's, at the same time as the Romantics were doing that, there was a whole tradition of women poets who were writing much more uh, structured verse, and they were derided as sentimental and trite and surfacy. They were called, the, you know, disparagingly called poetesses. But I have another blog post you might have seen called um, "Confessions of a Postmodern Poetess," where you know I really have proudly embrace that title of poetess and to me a part of being a poetess it's sort of like being a witch or a shaman where you use the structures of poetry as a magical tool to help uh, in, to help express the needs of your culture your tribe and you know you're, you're creating an object it's a craft it's like making a pot or a, a rug I'm, I'm proud of that i'm not embarrassed by that so um I I think that our culture could use more of that. It's a healing work that poets can do. But I think in order to do it well, you need to know how meter works. You need to know the forms and the structures, because otherwise you're just trying to express yourself out there on stage, and who gives a shit?
0: I like to ask my guests if they have a book that they would recommend to our listeners. Are you reading anything these days that really stands out for you?
1: Oh, wow. Um, So many things, but i One of my favorite books right now is um, Matriarchal Cultures by Heidi Guttner Abendroth. It's a fantastic worldwide synopsis of how matriarchal societies operate in every continent of the world. And it's uh, mind-bending. It's just been translated into English from, from German, and it's already having a gigantic impact.
0: Okay. Annie Finch, thank you so much for joining me.
1: You are welcome. Thank you
0: if you like the podcast please follow it in itunes or your favorite podcast app to learn more about scrivener go to scrivenerapp.com join us next month for another conversation on right now with scrivener